Hello, and welcome back to Small World Big Problems. This is a podcast from the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, located in our new home right outside the Capitol Building in Washington, D.C. I'm Eli George, and I will be your host for today. Now, the interview that you're about to hear was recorded on October 13th, 2023. Um, And we talk a lot in this interview about the October 7th attacks by Hamas on Israel, as well as the subsequent uh, Israel-Hamas war. And since it's been some time since we recorded, I wanted to provide a brief update on some things that have happened in the region since then. Throughout the interview, we talk about how in that first week since the attacks, how chaotic things were on the ground and how confusing the information that did come out of the region was. And frankly, not much has changed in that regard. Um, It is still difficult to get accurate information as far as what's going on on the ground in Gaza. A couple of things that we can say for certain, though. Uh, The Israeli ground assault into Gaza has started. The death toll continues to climb day by day. The initial attack on October 7th claimed about uh, 1,200 to 1,400 uh, Israeli lives, depending on the source that you look at. The subsequent fighting has killed about 10,000 Gazans, half of whom roughly are children. Our our guest in this interview, uh, John McLaughlin, makes several predictions about what the coming weeks and months would bring, and many of those prove true. For example, uh, he says that this fighting will have repercussions felt around the world. And we have certainly seen that as many world leaders, and civilians for that matter, are trying to decide who in this conflict they support. And oftentimes coming into conflict with their own friends, family, people that they have relationships with because of differing views on this. Likewise, we've seen an escalation of tensions within the Middle East. There have been uh, As of this new recording, 55 attacks on American bases in the Middle East, mostly in Syria and Iraq. Uh, No American servicemen have been killed yet, but there have been almost 60 injuries. We still lack a lot of information about this intelligence failure. Um, Why couldn't Israel detect the October 7th attacks before they happened? We still can't say for certain, and it's going to be a long time, I think, before we can say for certain. Uh, But it does appear, at least, that, again, as we discussed in the interview, that it wasn't just a matter of intelligence failure, but that the political turmoil within Israel at the time, the domestic political turmoil, might have had something to do with Israel's lack of readiness. Now, the term intelligence failure, I I know it's loaded, um, because saying something's a failure doesn't feel good. But the best thing to do at a time like this is to go through and think objectively about what happened, not to point fingers, not to cast blame, but to... Make sure it never, ever, ever happens again. Now, to be honest, we don't talk exclusively about Israel, Hamas in this episode, um, but I did want to give some of that background information. Mostly this episode is about how intelligence analysts look at information and try to find an objective view of the world, if, if such a thing is even possible. And I'm convinced after conducting this interview that it is a very, very hard thing to do. Now, a few more brief disclaimers, and trust me, this is an episode with lots of disclaimers. If you want a detailed account of the entire history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you are not going to find it in this episode, um, nor are you going to find uh, specific policy recommendations on how to stop the current violence, because that really isn't what we're trying to look at. Instead, we are looking at how governments, but more importantly, how people view the world, how we take in information, and how we analyze it. And with that, I hope the following interview entertains you, and if you don't find it entertaining, I hope you at least find it educational. Today we are joined by our first returning guest here on Small World Big Problems. Professor John McLaughlin is the Professor of Practice here at the School of Advanced International Studies. He also spent over 30 years at the Central Intelligence Agency, including time as both the Deputy Director and later Acting Director of Central Intelligence. Since his time at the CIA, Professor McLaughlin has been heavily involved in discussions about both the use and practice of intelligence in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, Professor John McLaughlin, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Eli. Good to be here. Now, I do want to start with a disclaimer to our listeners. We'll be discussing some of the recent events in Israel and Gaza, and the situation there is changing 
very quickly. New information is coming out very quickly. For example, I just saw a news article saying that Gaza only has a few hours of fuel left before it starts running out of fuel to power its homes and its hospitals. And so there's a possibility that from the time that we start this recording to the time that we end this recording, the situation will have changed. And so I just want to give our listeners a heads up about that. Now, um, my first question to you, Professor McLaughlin, is how do you see these recent events fitting into the broader narrative of Israeli-Palestinian relationships? Is this just a a small blip in the longer timeline, or is this a significant change of course on how that relationship has been going? Uh, Eli, I think this is uh, a huge change, a tectonic change, one might say. This is the most vicious attack that Israel has ever received from the Palestinians. And it comes, of course, from the most radical wing of the Palestinian movement, which in some ways is not well connected to the rest of the Palestinian movement. It comes at a time when other things are changing in the Middle East in the past. Normally, the Middle East has been, if not stable, at least somewhat more predictable than it is today. So that's one way to think about it. I tend to think about the problems like this in what I call concentric circles. So in this case, the innermost circle would be Israel itself, small country, and Gaza, a place about the size of Detroit in the United States. And the fighting there is unfolding, as you indicated. It will be intense. It will go on for some period of time. And yet, we can't think of this as a hermetically sealed event. The next concentric circle out would be the region itself. And this, this fighting and the emotions that it involves, uh, the political connections that it involves, uh, have tentacles going out into the region. Apparently, from what the U.S. government says, <clears throat> we do not have any smoking gun that shows us Iranian involvement or Iranian decision-making in this. But the common understanding and I think it's easily established, is that Iran certainly is partly responsible for what's happening here because of the years of training and money that they've put into the Hamas movement and the fact that they've publicly acknowledged that, their assistance to Hamas, and the fact that they are at leadership levels rejoicing at what Hamas has done. So there is an Iranian angle to this, if not a smoking gun. And Iran has proxies in this region going to that second concentric circle. Uh, Just to the north, uh, their affiliate Hezbollah in Lebanon has had wars with Israel before. It lasted Mm -hmm. 2006. And in Syria, something not many people have mentioned, the Iranians are deeply embedded, both with Mm -hmm. conventional forces and with militias they control. And that's just one way in which the region is connected here. Uh, And then you have the ongoing talks between uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia that the United States has been encouraging, uh, which are disrupted uh, pretty dramatically by this event. So then you have the global (laughs) going to the third concentric circle, and I'll I'll stop here just to say that, you know, the rest of the world is not just watching. The rest of the world has interests here. You know, for the Russians, uh, who haven't said much so far, they have not condemned this attack as we are speaking here at this hour. Uh, They haven't rejoiced over it, but uh, reading between the lines of what they do say, this is for them a convenient distraction for the United States and for our allies uh, with regard to Ukraine, where they are at war, and where we as the United States now have to be looking at two parts of the world that are deeply inflamed. That's always hard for the American uh, policymaking establishment to manage. So that's, that's the bigger picture I see. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think already in the process, people are looking back on the lead up to these attacks and and seeing mistakes. And, you know, in government, in international relations, we're always trying to learn from past mistakes. And a lot of people, I think, are talking about the intelligence failure in Israel, that Israel supposedly has some of the best intelligence agencies in the world, but they weren't able to detect this fairly sophisticated attack. Now, just to start off, I I mean, you've been involved in thinking about intelligence as long as anyone else out there. Uh, When these sorts of failures happen, where do you see that that break? You know, where in the system of intelligence collection and intelligence analysis is 
um, the most common point of failure, or, or, or is it all over the place? You know, where in the process could things have gone wrong? That's uh, a tough question, Eli. Now, I, I've lived through a lot of intelligence successes, but I've certainly lived through a lot of intelligence failures. Uh, anyone in intelligence can make that statement. And so anything I say here about Israel is said with understanding, sympathy, and uh, a great deal of humility, because we don't know yet what happened. Uh, we just don't. But looking at how intelligence failures usually happen, um, they're complicated and they involve seldom, seldom involve just one big mistake. They involve a series of uh, errors, both of collection, that is gathering of information, and of analysis, that is how you see that information, how you put it together. Uh, in this case, um, all sorts of things could be involved, all sorts of things. We know some from what some Israelis have now said. We know some particulars, but they don't tell the whole story. The fact that the Palestinians were able to knock out some of the communications that, with drones, oddly enough, that um, <laughs> Israel has on the, the borders of Gaza. So that's just, but that's just a, a pinpoint in this larger story. Let's start with uh, the fact that it's always hard to anticipate when an adversary does something dramatic that they've never done before. And in this case, that's what happened. Hamas, in this attack, as everyone now knows, used mm -hmm. everything from drones to paragliders to maritime operations to street battles in Israeli cities to breaching the wall. Um, and on and on. So in previous engagements with Hamas, nothing like this had ever been seen. So chances are, going back to the way the Israelis thought about their failure to detect the 1973 war, the Yom Kippur War, where Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack, one of the things that people thought about after that was that Israel thought Egypt and Syria had been so badly beaten in 1967 in a war that they would not be so bold as to try it again, nor would they be strong enough. The problem with that is that the adversary doesn't think that way and the adversary gets a vote. So in that case, I think it's commonly thought now that Egypt and Syria knew they were risking a loss. But their point was to show they weren't permanently beaten, that they could come out of the blocks again, that they, they were not completely down and out, and they didn't have to win in the traditional sense. They just had to not be totally smashed and put in a decent showing, which they did enough of to unite most of the Arab world around them. So that may have been a, you know, a factor here. They may have thought the Hamas was just not strong enough to do all of the things that they've just done. And that causes you to relax a little bit. Um, a parallel here to uh, the Tet mm -hmm. Offensive in 1968 in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I was there as a soldier in the U.S. Army about two months after Tet. And one of my jobs was to figure out how had that happened? How had they infiltrated? They, they too had done something unprecedented. They mm -hmm. had infiltrated secretly. They had... Uh, burrowed into cities nationwide, and on one day they emerged to attack on what everyone thought was um, a sacred holiday, Tet. And it took everyone by surprise. They had never done it before, and the U.S. military at the time was caught off guard because they thought the North Vietnamese were too weak to do that. So some of that may have been involved here, some dropping of the guard, some lowering of the sense of um, urgency. And then I could go on too long about this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll, I'll just stop there and say, if you want to talk about some other factors in the mix, I would talk about deception. There was, I think, some deception here. We know, which is always a, very frequently a factor in intelligence failures. The um, Palestinians, we now know, had apparently been making reassuring noises mm -hmm. in whatever channels the Israelis had to them about uh, the fact that the, the impression they were giving is they would not mount a big attack. And they apparently sought to embed this impression with a number of statements and techniques and body language and everything else. Mm -hmm. So deception is often involved. It, it's one of the factors behind the U.S., failure to anticipate the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 and the Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in 1990. So I'll just stop there because the, the whole question of intelligence failure is complicated and 
and often difficult to diagnose. Final thought, mm-hmm. it's absolutely sure that the Israelis will dig deeply into this, that they, they are a service that does not deny failure. They stare it in the face and they ask, as we do in the United States, what went wrong? What do we need to fix? How do we keep this from ever happening again? Mm-hmm. And you're always vulnerable to it, but they will do that. They will do that. But when this is over, yeah. this is not time for them to be doing that. And it's worth mentioning to our listeners as well that we don't have access to any you know, non-public information. We're only making assumptions based off of what's available to the public more broadly. And and Israel will do a very in-depth analysis or investigation in, into what went Absolutely. wrong. And Absolutely. I, I'm working off of historical memory mm-hmm. and what I'm reading in the press today. Mm-hmm. And to your first point about success sometimes breeding um, underestimation of your enemy, I'm just, as another example, I'm a big fan of ice hockey. And in ice hockey, sometimes the best time to score is right after your opponent scores. And I think that that mentality maybe applies to some degree in in the Yom Kippur War, in uh, the Tet Offensive as well, and maybe potentially in, in this most recent series of attacks. It's an excellent point, Eli, because you know we're not talking as much about a professional discipline here as we are talking about human nature. Mm-hmm. And to that point, it seems like intelligence collection and analysis is an incredible exercise in empathy. Um, and being able to put yourself in your opponent's shoes, being able to understand their goals um, and what risks they're willing to take and what norms they're willing to breach in order to reach those goals. Uh, just from a broad perspective, you know, in the United States, in Israel, elsewhere, how do you do that from just a, a practical perspective? Well, it helps to have people in your intelligence service who have spent time in these Mm -hmm. countries you're looking at, who have a sense for the cultural milieu and the the way that people think, uh, how they connect thoughts, uh, how they plan things, what is their level of emotion, all of that. But you have to check this. One of the things we've learned in looking at our own failures is that you have to get into their shoes. Mm -hmm. And you have to, in a sense, almost become them mentally, mm-hmm. in order to kind of imagine how would they approach this. Uh, one thing we did uh, in, the Ameri- in the CIA is to create what we called a red team. Hmm. The red team meant a group of people, usually drawn from the most adventurous uh, thinkers that we had, to come together as a, as a team and literally ima- put themselves in the shoes of, in this case, terrorists, Mm-hmm. And imagine if they were doing it, what would they do? What targets would they choose? What would they anticipate in the way of countermeasures? How could we prepare for that? So that's mm-hmm. one technique you use. Another technique uh, is to use what the Israelis have used, actually. And not in this case, perhaps. I don't know yet. But the Israelis typically use a system called devil's advocacy, where you give the data you have to a group of people who aren't working on that problem specifically, and you ask them without necessarily telling them what your conclusion is. You give them that data and you say, well, well, what do you make of this? What would you conclude from it? And you frequently get rather different answers. This is something the CIA did, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, at the time uh, just before the takedown killing of bin Laden at Abbottabad in 2011. Mm -hmm. CIA analysts had come to a conclusion that he was there with maybe, I'm going to make this up, uh, 70% confidence. And they gave all of that data to another group of people and asked them to look at it without revealing where CIA had come out. And they got a somewhat different answer. And then they gave it to a third group of people, did the same thing. So by the time they went to the policymakers for a decision, those people had the benefit of three different views. Now, I have to say to people listening, no one in these circumstances, almost it's almost never the case that no one knows for sure. Yeah. Uh, a key thing about intelligence is you almost never have all of the information you want. You're almost always working with good information, perhaps, but incomplete. So there's always an element of uncertainty and chance in your judgments. Yeah. And as you said earlier, uh, so much of it, I think, comes down to human nature. And as humans are trying to do any sort of analysis, um, 
personally, I'm of the opinion that humans aren't always the most logical of people, or logical of animals, I should say. How do you get rid of potential biases that you might have if you're going into analyzing intelligence and you so, maybe from an emotional perspective, want desperately for something to be true? How can you get rid of that sort of confirmation bias and look at things from an unbiased perspective? Is it just a matter of getting more opinions, as you said? It's a tough problem. Mm -hmm. There is no um, ethic or um, mission in the intelligence community more precious, more central than the requirement to be objective. I sometimes use the word clinical, meaning looking at a situation a bit the way a physician does clinically. Yeah. Gathering the data, staring at it, interpreting it in an almost scientific manner if it's quantitative, but otherwise interpreting it and trying to get out of your mind what you just suggested, preconceptions, mindset, biases, so forth. And there are a couple of ways to combat the tendency to see things as you want to see them. Mm-hmm. One is to ask a lot of questions and to ask the right questions. For example, in the case of the Iraq WMD failure, mm-hmm. uh, the questions most people were asking were, where is the WMD? Mm-hmm. A more interesting question might have been, is there WMD? And that would have been going more to the core of that problem at the time. That's a whole other story. The other thing you can do is use a series of uh, analytic techniques that test the proposition. You can do what we call scenarios analysis. That is to say, you can you can lay out three or four ways in which a situation could evolve and then look for indicators of each of those situations and see if those indicators are appearing. You can go to um, something called um, Uh, structured brainstorming Hmm. in which you get a group of people together and you follow a number of rules. You put the problem out on the table and then for an hour or two, everyone gets to give their view with certain rules like no one is interrupted. You have a moderator who is not involved, who keeps track of this. You write everything down. And when you're done, you look at it and you see what are the patterns there. Uh, So there are multiple kind of thought experiments you can do to test your judgment. And one final thought on that. With anything you're trying to assess, you are, whether you whether you may realize it or not, you are making assumptions. Mm-hmm. And it's important to be explicit about what it is you are assuming. For example, after one failure at the CIA, we took all of the analysts offline for a period of time and asked them to explicitly write down the assumptions that undergirded the conclusions they were coming to about whatever problem they were working on, Mm -hmm. and then to challenge those assumptions and to have others challenge those assumptions. See what I'm driving at, that people don't just come to conclusions. When you ask someone, why did you come to that conclusion? There are underlying assumptions. You have to bring those out, make them explicit, hold them up to the light, put them under a microphone, hammer on them, see if you can break them. Mm -hmm. Um, All of that sounds pretty elaborate, but that's (laughs) kind of what you train analysts to do instinctively. Yeah, It's part of the job to be able to think through things like that and to put your personal thoughts in a separate box. Very hard. It's, it kind of runs counter to human nature. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking is so much of it is almost unprogramming the way our brains are programmed to work. And, good way to put it. and on that note, um, you know, so much of what you're talking about is is about, I guess, data-driven analysis. And in some ways, it almost reminds me of the scientific method and how scientists can use data to try to come to a quote-unquote unbiased picture of what the world really looks like. And I guess my question is, that in that sort of situation, is there any room for like gut feelings and intuition or if you have an intuition say say you have an intuition that an attack is imminent from an enemy and you don't necessarily have hard evidence to back it up is that actionable at all or should you just put that in a box and ignore it you have to pay attention to it Mm -hmm. definitely have to pay attention to it you know i've just been talking about all of these techniques for being clinical and so (laughs) forth and um and sometimes you have quantitative data that you're working with which is somewhat somewhat less susceptible to all of these uh, 
fallacies that we've been talking about. That is to say, if you're certain of your source for quantitative data, let's say you have what we call the telemetry from a missile test. That's the signals that a missile gives off when a country is testing it Mm -hmm. that they record in order to understand the performance of the missile. If you can acquire that data, which uh, the American intelligence community works hard to acquire, it's going to tell you things like, did the missile stages separate at altitude? Did they ignite? Did they go downstream? Did any of them burn up? You're going to learn that. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty hard stuff. That's hard meaning certain. Yeah. But in the other categories of things, what is in Putin's head? When will, uh, if, if at all, when will Xi move on Taiwan? Those are harder questions that aren't, you know, they're not discoverable and they may be discoverable, but only with the extraordinary effort. So for those, yeah, gut instinct sometimes matters. Someone's been following um, an individual for years and years, knows their pattern, knows their ups and downs, knows their habits, uh, knows their foibles. Uh, You want to pay attention to what the gut is telling that person about what a foreign decision maker is going to do or about a situation. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes uh, I, I often tell the story of on one occasion, I was in my office with a group of people in discussion and the door burst open and a, <laughs> an analyst came in kind of like, I always say, like Seinfeld, like a Kramer on Seinfeld, just sort of <laughs> bursting into the room, excited and, uh, you know, completely shattering the uh, calm and uh, <laughs> and, and holding up, waving in his hand an image taken from space of a particular country's missile program and Mm -hmm. saying, I've looked at this and instantly I understood that they are 18 months further along than we thought they were. Now, many other people had seen that image Mm -hmm. and no one else had seen that. No one else had come to that conclusion. Something about long time on, on the problem allowed this individual in a way that even he might have had trouble explaining to just instantly know this is different. That's Mm -hmm. gut instinct. So you have to pay attention to it, but it can't be your sole guide. Mm-hmm. It just can't be. Well, and it seems almost like a, a catch-22 in that when doing intel analysis, you're trying to avoid some parts of human nature, but you're still fundamentally trying to understand the actions of other humans and predict the actions of other humans. And it's just finding that balance between those two extremes. Um, uh, that's a good way to put it. And this this is maybe tangential to, to the main thing that we're talking about, but it, it does just raise a question in my mind. Following this thread of, you know, avoiding some of the logical fallacies that humans are, you know, sort of want to do, do you think AI is useful at all at creating a quote-unquote objective picture of um, intelligence analysis, you know, and avoiding those human tendencies and those human fallacies? Not yet. Okay. There's a great deal of discussion and uh, even controversy in the intelligence world now about AI. Mm-hmm. I think everyone acknowledges it's important. It can be helpful and, and people need to work with it and pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. I, this is such a new thing that I can't pretend to have any particular wisdom on it. I've played with it, but Here's what I think. I I think that the intelligence community would be foolish to brush it aside. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone who's worked with something like chat GPT or uh, the Google version BARD, I think it's called, would would know that it has strengths and weaknesses. Um, I found that if it's something that you don't know very much about that you're seeking to learn, you may you may be fooled a little bit by what <laughs> appears to be a very persuasive answer that may not be right. Mm-hmm. But if it's something you know a lot about, uh, you can generally tell whether the result you're getting is helpful or not. So uh, the way I see it in this crude sort of way at this point is that uh, it can be another way of looking at something that you mm-hmm. can take or leave. A little bit like when I talked about uh, seeking a devil's advocate view of things, a con- mm-hmm. which is another way to put that is deliberately seeking a contrary view. Um, mm-hmm. I think AI has some potential to be particularly helpful on that score at its current level of development. If you get a contrary, if you get something that makes sense but disagrees with you, 
that's worth thinking about. Well, yeah, it's, I'm thinking, you know, even if AI doesn't provide the 100% correct analysis, um, at the very least, it is a different interpretation of the analysis that might maybe help the humans using it. I think you have to keep your mind open to it. It's a bit mm-hmm. like when I would give a, an assessment to some policymaker on something like Russia that they strongly disagreed with. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say, so-and-so, this, this individual is very corrupt and you shouldn't deal with them. And they would say, well, I've, I've met this person many times. They don't seem corrupt to me. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't agree with you. <laughs> well, I would always say, okay, fine. Now you know what you think. In other words, this assessment, which you disagree with, gives you something to compare to your thinking and perhaps firms up your own view of the problem. That's a helpful thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's an odd view. <laughs> it made someone angry, but uh, that's the best face I could put on it. And uh, I think there's a little bit of that with AI. In other words, don't reject it. Don't swallow it whole. But that's that current state of development now. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is all changing and developing faster than we can do this podcast. So, you know, maybe a year from now, two years from now, uh, AI will, I, I don't think it will ever replace the human mm-hmm. analyst. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to that gut instinct you were talking about. Um, the other part of analysis, if you want to stay with that, is that what human analysts bring to the party is in part situational awareness of what's going on around them and particularly in the policy community in, among the decision makers. Mm-hmm. A good analyst knows what are the problems that decision makers are struggling with and how can I then be helpful by unearthing certain kinds of facts and untangling certain kinds of questions and problems. So that's something AI is not there to do yet. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess part of it too is that intelligence, I think generally, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think generally maybe the goal is for it to be actionable, to, to be able to go to a policymaker and say, you know, here's how we can actually use this to make a difference in our foreign policy or whatever it might be. And AI may not be as good at, you know, coming up with solutions that are actually workable. Like maybe it'll come up with a solution that gets the job done, but not something that's really feasible or reasonable for government to do. I think that's a reasonable way, reasonable expectation to have about it at this point in its development. Yeah. And you're right. I think normally you want intelligence to be actionable or if not actionable, at least adding value Mm -hmm. to what people know, which is a problem these days because so much more is known publicly and available publicly than Mm -hmm. was the case even 10 years ago. So the the challenge of adding value to what people know is sharpened a bit in the current environment of uh, free-flowing information, including much that years ago would have been classified, commercial imagery from space and things like that. Going back to the question of intelligence failure, how do communications between different agencies play into that? Is it just a matter of interpreting the data correctly or is there an aspect of just how the interactions between the agencies and then between those agencies and the government, does that play a factor in intelligence failure or intelligence success as well? Well, the United States has spent a lot of time now, uh, particularly since the 9-11 attacks, ensuring that uh, intelligence agencies are talking to each other. In truth, from where I sat, they were talking to each other more at the time of 9-11 than most people understand or believe but not well enough. Mm-hmm. And that's been dramatically improved, particularly on what we would call transnational issues like terrorism. Mm-hmm. That's important in any country because different agencies are collecting different kinds of information from different sources. And the, the important thing is that someone has to look at all of that and make a decision about who needs to see this in order for it to be a comprehensive picture. And if someone gets turf conscious or decides, "Mm, I don't want to share this because this is ours, then you risk, you're you're running into the potential for failure. Um, It's very important. And I think we're much better at this now. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is now, though, also um, matched by an equivalent problem, which is the problem of volume. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you went back 
20 years, it was possible for a typical intelligence officer to kind of get through their daily take, if you will, their daily mail, whatever you want to call it, you know, in a couple hours. And now, without sophisticated information technology, which can always make mistakes, of course, you just can't do that. Mm-hmm. Like everyone else in the world, intelligence officers are firehosed with information. <laughs> and now a new danger is that an old problem is made more acute. The old problem that I'm talking about is what uh, Roberta Wolstetter in her classic book on Pearl Harbor, the failure there, called the signals to noise problem. In Mm -hmm. other words, there are signals in all of this that tell you what's going to happen in all of this noise that you're getting, all of these documents and intercepted communications and photographs. But if you're getting too many of them, the, the signals, the clues can get lost. And I've looked at at least one intelligence failure uh, at the request of our government to Mm -hmm. kind of look back at it and see what happened here. And that was a principal conclusion that the uh, 20 or so documents which would have painted the picture were uh, submerged in thousands and thousands of documents that screened, if you will, the insights that were in those several documents scattered among them, both physically and temporally. Mm-hmm. in terms of when they arrived and where they arrived and who got to see them and so forth. So that's a challenge, constant challenge, made more difficult by the volume problem. So on that note of sort of the signal to noise problem, is that something that adversaries or just in general organizations trying to avoid detection might use if they're planning a big operation like, for example, 9-11 or like these October 7th attacks in Israel? Is that something that in this case, these terrorist organizations, they'll try to do a bunch of small actions leading up to it that aren't really detectable by the agencies rather than, you know, big movements that would be detectable. Well, yes, there are a number of things they can do, uh, including going quiet. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, intercepted communications is a wonderful tool unless the other side decides to use communications discipline, mm-hmm. that is to basically not do anything electronically. I, I will not be surprised if during this period in the run-up to the Hamas attacks, if they did not do one or two of these things, first being either to be very careful not to say anything on phones or in email or in any electronic form mm-hmm. about what they were doing, and, uh, and second, to the extent that and I'm here drawing on examples I've seen in other settings mm-hmm. to the extent they did say anything that was uh, detectable, that they use it for purposes of deception. Hmm. That is to, to, to point in some other direction. Now I had a personal experience with this in Vietnam. Uh, I discovered after coming back from Vietnam after 13 months there, that a source we had followed who was speaking on open radio communication and from whom we took many operational uh, leads that led to battle movements uh, was uh, basically a deceiving, was a deception Mm -hmm. operation, but carried out very cleverly. So, you know, in the intelligence community, you have to have people who are thinking all the time about deception. And it's not something that is easy to do or often not well done for a whole bunch of reasons. But one of them being that uh, the United States doesn't in- typically engage in a lot of deception itself. Yeah. It's, deception seems unclean, mm-hmm. but to many people, un-American to be deceiving. But, uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, the adversaries we deal with are, uh, you know, it's a discipline with them. So all of those things are in the mix. And I, I think that sometimes those stories of deception make for some of the best um, storytelling in, you know, movies and, and whatnot about historical events. You know, I think there's, for example, the compelling story of during World War II, the British leaving a, a body with false documents on it to fake out the Germans, essentially. And tricks like that go all the way back to Egypt and the Hittites fighting. Tantu, writing in the 6th century BC exactly about... Uh, Deception Operations, the Chinese Theorist, is still a very good book, mm-hmm. The Art of War. Now, turning to the situation in Israel specifically, um, do you think that this most recent intelligence failure, and I, 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 we've been using that word, I, I do think it's safe to characterize it as a, a failure, but perhaps you feel differently about that. But the failure to detect these attacks, do you think that that is 
sort of a one-time event, or do you think it, it shows more systemic issues in Israel's intelligence community? I don't think it shows systemic. Again, let's put the caveat out there. We don't know enough yet. <laughs> True. But as we broadcast this, but given what I know about Israel and its intelligence service, I, I don't see this as a systemic failure that is somehow representative of the, the basic performance of that uh, system. And, and it, it pains everyone to call it a failure, uh, given the tragic circumstances that we're looking at here. But what I can say is that sometimes, despite your best efforts, despite uh, everything you're doing, you still miss something. Mm-hmm. In this case, uh, I, the intelligence service in Israel is so professional, so careful, so good that uh, I'm convinced they will figure out what happened here and and take corrective action. And so th- this, I don't think, can be seen as an ongoing problem for them. In other words, this is not revealed something fundamentally wrong about their service, I don't think. There, there are other big factors in the mix here, including the fact that Israel has been in uh, deep political turmoil mm-hmm. now for most of a year, uh, during which many of the objections to government policy have been coming from military and intelligence officers. Mm-hmm. It means they have been distracted. And the one thing that I took away from my work on terrorism is you must maintain a constant, intense, unrelenting focus mm-hmm. or, you, or, or, or they will slip by because they follow no rules. And it's, con- it's conceivable, again, not knowing anything at this point, it's conceivable that authorities who normally would be on top of this were distracted by internal tensions mm-hmm. and uh, passions about domestic politics. And there are other factors involved here as well. And uh, to give our listeners a bit of background on, on what you were mentioning, uh, essentially the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, was attempting to reform the judicial system uh, in order to remove some checks and balances on his power. And it was met with widespread protests amongst the Israeli public, as well as um, by several important key parts of the Israeli defense organizations and Israeli intelligence community. And I do think I've personally seen lots of accusations that that had some impact on their uh, military readiness, at least, um, leading up to these attacks. There's another factor that, we, mm-hmm. that, again, without knowing anything, my instinct is to look to past experience and practice. And sometimes we, we may learn, we may learn that in fact, uh, some people in the Israeli intelligence military establishment sensed danger coming, sensed that something major was going to happen, but didn't have the kind of compelling specific data mm-hmm. uh, that would have galvanized action. You used the word actionable earlier. It's, it's hard to get policymakers to the point of action because they're making many choices. And when you ask them to go do something that involves movement of men, women, material, resources, uh, they always have to balance that against, well, what are the other things that we have to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and to some degree, policy and intelligence is a matter almost entirely of making choices. Mm-hmm. And many of the choices you make, you make with the deliberate, under the, uh, the clear understanding that you may be risking failure by choosing to do one thing versus another. And, um, you know, that that happens all the time. In my time, it would not have been unusual for me to call a, a senior military official and ask them to move a destroyer or a, an aircraft that was collecting intelligence from one part of the world to another because we needed to have mm-hmm. an intense focus on something. And in doing so, I would recognize that I was exposing uh, something in the part of the world from which they would move and that there wasn't much choice of that because uh, you had to make a choice. You couldn't do everything. We may find there's something like that uh, also happening here. When you have failures like this, and, and perhaps you can speak to some of the emotions happening after 9-11 in, in the United States, does, does this, something like this put a strain on the relationship between Intel community and the government? Or you know, are they able to 
work past that? Or is there a lot of blame flying around internally, do you think? Typically, um, government and intelligence will, in the aftermath of a tragedy like this, and this was the case in, in the 9-11 instance, they will unite. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone will know that at some point there has to be some accounting. But for the moment, the job is how to prevent this from happening again, how to deal with what's facing us at this hour. And uh, certainly in the United States, we all came together. Now, having said that, it wasn't very long in the case of 9-11 before the Congress formed up first uh, one committee and then second committee, the 9-11 Commission, to examine what had happened. And we immediately had to dedicate, as I recall, about 50 people, very strong people, Mm -hmm. to a task force to support the investigation. So the The tricky part of this is that, and I think the Israelis are probably already experiencing some of this uh, Mm -hmm. tension. The tricky part is that you you have to perform the mission, which almost always is stop this, don't let it happen again, ensure that it's never going to happen again, while also looking back objectively to, to what occurred and why it occurred. Uh, normally that doesn't happen in the first hours, days, or even weeks or months, but it happens pretty soon um, after an event like this. And even then, I think in the United States, yeah, there was some finger pointing and some some blame going around. But even then, I think the residue of having to work together to bring this to a close Mm -hmm. creates a certain degree of understanding and unanimity among people in government. And, you know, a friend of mine, Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State, was a friend of mine. And uh, we worked together at one point. And she always said something that I often repeat. She would say, you know, government is hard. (laughs) (laughs) By which she meant, in circumstances like this, many people, particularly in the media, will think, will be starting to look at the politics of it, when in fact, I'm sure right now in the White House, and in the policymaking circles of Israel, everyone is just working flat out without thinking about politics very much at all. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the way it was after 9-11. Hmm. I, I suppose that's that's reassuring to, to some extent. Um, now, I do have... That's life in government. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I do have one final question, and it's a, a big question that I'm sure we could make an entirely separate podcast about, but um, I don't know that we have time to do that. And we've been kind of hinting at this throughout, but how do you know that you know anything in intelligence? And the comparison that I'm thinking of is, you know, for example, if you're taking a test in school, you have a rubric and an answer key that you can compare it to and say, oh, I got 85% correct because I answered 85% of the questions correct. But in intelligence, you don't have an answer key. So how do you know that your judgments are anywhere near the truth? Well, you're you're asking about something that I think we can call the difference between the things that are knowable and discoverable and things that are mysteries. Mm-hmm. So knowable and discoverable, those are things that you 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 can find out through some intelligence means. It may be difficult, but mm-hmm. you 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 can it is possible with effort to find out. Uh, Just off the top of my head, um, how many missiles does China have opposite Taiwan? I don't know right now, but I know that's knowable and discoverable. Mm -hmm. In other words, you you can count them with um, perhaps imagery from space. Maybe you've got human sources. Maybe you're listening to intercepted communications, whatever. It's a secret, but you can find out. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you know, the question of how serious is the Chinese president about um, moving to absorb Taiwan into China? That's, we know he's serious about it, but when will he do it? How will he do it? Will he do it really? That's kind of a mystery. Mm-hmm. He may not know himself at this point. Um, so how do you know? Well, I guess what I'm saying is with things that are factual, knowable, discoverable, concrete, and if you can get at them, you really do know them. Uh, you, someone tests a missile, you get the uh, emanations from that missile, the electronic emanations. You're pretty sure that you know how high it went, how far it went, and you can say with confidence 
or you have a human source that you've had for years and years and years who has consistently been reliable, consistently been correct in what they're reporting, and you've done enough testing and work with them to know they're not being double agents for another power. Mm-hmm. You're pretty sure that what you hear is true. Um, but then there's that other category of things, and you don't know with mysteries you're not let off the hook because there's no discoverable answer. You still have to give an opinion, but you don't know whether you're right until you know. One example would be in 1995, we wrote a national intelligence estimate that said within the next 15 years, no country, no hostile country would develop an intercontinental ballistic missile that could reach the United States. So that would have, 15 years would have taken you to 2010, Mm -hmm. right? In 1995, that was a very controversial thing to say. And we were accused of being wrong. And uh, there was even a commission to examine how we could have been so wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out we were right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 2010 came and left. And North Korea, Iran, uh, Iraq, none of them had developed an intercontinental ballistic Mm -hmm. missile. So sometimes you don't know until you know. (laughs) And in the meantime, uh, people who think you know or don't know or think you're wrong or think that you've said something for political reasons will, you know, accuse you of all sorts of things. And it's part of the business. comes with the territory. Well, on that note, uh, Professor John McLaughlin, thank you again for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure. If our listeners do want to keep up with you or your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, they can listen to this podcast. Uh, they can uh, check the website at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And a fair amount of the things I write on a short-term basis appear in a publication called The Cipher Brief, mm-hmm. C-I-P-H-E-R, The Cipher Brief. And uh, that's those are good ways. Mm-hmm. And that includes an article that you published within the past few days about... Um, the situation in Israel and how it compares to historical uh, instances of intelligence failure. And so if listeners want to know more about this topic, they can certainly check out that article as well. Great. Thank you. Well, Professor McLaughlin, I know you have a busy schedule coming up, um, but thank you again for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you again to John McLaughlin for coming on the show. Uh, If you want to read his article in the Cypher Brief, we will include a link in this episode's show notes. That article includes some details that we didn't quite cover in this episode, so if you're interested in the topic, be sure to check that out. Also, thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, This is an almost entirely student-led production. Uh, We do have two faculty staff advisors, one of whom is the man I just interviewed, John McLaughlin. Um, But the vast majority of the work producing and researching for this show is done by students, grad students, who have entire lives being full-time grad students outside of working on this show. So on their behalf, Thank you again for listening. If you want to send us any feedback, as long as it's friendly, or if you want to send us any episode topic ideas, you can reach out over email at SiceStrategyPodcast at gmail.com. That again is Sice, S-A-I-S, StrategyPodcast at gmail.com. And feel free to follow us as well on Instagram or X at SiceStratPod. If you want to check out our back catalog or be updated when there's new episodes, Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcast, Amazon, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with a new host and a new guest. We'll see you all soon.